Salvation by Substitution is the title of my sermon. The big idea, the good news, is to be celebrated and passed on. Now, in the United States, we are used to commemorating and celebrating major events. One thinks of Veterans Day, uh, Memorial Day, Independence Day, birthdays. Who goes big for birthdays in their home? Anniversaries? Husbands, come on, guys. These days function as a reminder of what has happened in the past. And we remember to give thanks. Amen? We remember to give thanks. So there appears to be a clear correlation between remembering and gratitude. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. Remembering and gratitude. Those two go hand in hand. We remember to give thanks. What do we learn in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, 16? This is a lot of text. Number one, salvation by substitution. The Passover, and this is such a key moment in Israel's story. The Passover serves as a paradigm for God's saving work through his son, Jesus Christ. The, the Passover looks ahead to the greater substitution, the greater sacrifice, the greater act of salvation. This beautiful theme of salvation by substitution, if you're reading the Bible in context, it's not new. We've seen it already in Genesis, twice. Genesis 3.15, and then a few verses later in verse 21. Let me read Genesis 3.15. And I will put, and this is after the fall, okay? And, and this is in the context of curses. But there's also the promise of hope, the promise of victory. And I will put in between Enmity, that's like division. Think of like two heads butting, right? Enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So through the death of Eve's seed, because again, you know, we live in East Texas. We know about poisonous snakes. The, the picture here is one of victory through death, victory through sacrifice, get bit by a poisonous snake, you could die, right? But there's also the picture of victory here. Again, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So victory is going to come, but it's going to come through what? Through death. So through the death of Eve's seed, and who's that? Who would come from Eve? Christ, the seed of promise. God would provide victory over evil. And then we get to 321, and it's easy to read over this. Just God's kindness. But listen, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Through the death of animals, Adam and Eve will be covered. Again, it's a picture of substitution. Now, what were the Lord's instructions for the Passover? Aaron just read that for us, really starting in verse 3 all the way to 13. Um, let me read it one more time. We forget so quickly, don't we? I want to be fresh as we go through these verses. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house as a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. It's really important language. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And this is an important line. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now what stands out in these verses? Just a few quick observations. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without what? Blemish. What is the purpose of this particular instruction? We know that an animal with a split ear or a blind eye tastes just as good as an animal without, right? Come on now. Doug Stewart notes, and this is helpful. Thus, the reason for demanding perfection rested not on the quality of the meal, but in the symbolic purpose. The animal served as a reminder of the eventual deliverance that a perfect God perfectly provided for his people as a part of the process of making them holy like himself. Here's the really good part of the quotation. Proper relating to God requires perfection. Proper relating to God requires what? Perfection. The Passover lamb pointed to the perfect substitution to come. Verse 6, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, this detail is so easy to overlook, but it's worth a pause. So let's pause. Each family was to function in a priestly role. And this is later seen in Exodus 19.6, where the Lord declares of Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people were to be a priestly people. And this points ahead to the priesthood of all believers established in Christ, as seen in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. As Walt Kaiser notes, here there was no priest, no altar, no tabernacle. Families were communing in the presence of God and around the sacrificial lamb that was the substitute for each member of that family. Walt Kaiser is a pretty well-known Old Testament scholar. He was the president uh, at the seminary that I attended uh, a long time ago, but he sounded just like Yogi Bear. So when I read his quotes, I, just, I hear Yogi Bear. That's kind of what I hear in my mind. So um, I wish you could hear him say it. It would it'd be delightful. All right, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now, what did this symbolize? Not that a Hebrew family dwelled in this particular home, but more importantly, that sinners dwelled in this particular home. Sinners that looked to the grace of the Lord and his merciful provision of a substitution. The blood declared that a sacrifice had been made, a substitution provided. 
Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Alexander notes, by eating sacrificial meat, the Israelites are made ritually pure. So the unleavened bread, bread without leaven, the unleavened bread was a reminder of their need to make haste. And the bitter herbs, why bitter herbs? The bitter herbs were a reminder of their bitter years of slavery in Egypt. Again, they're called to remember. Remember, verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. This was a faith meal. The Passover was to serve as a faith meal. By being fully dressed and ready, the people of Israel demonstrated their faith, their trust in the Lord to powerfully deliver them from Egypt as promised. Now, why was the Passover necessary? Why? Because Israel, too, was what? They were guilty. Israel, too, was guilty. If they didn't follow the Lord's instruction and trust him, then they, too, would be judged. They needed a what? A substitute to bear the wrath of God for them. Tim Chester writes, the point is this. The Israelites deserve the judgment of death just as much as the Egyptians. If this was simply a story of political liberation, then Israel would be the innocent victims. They wouldn't need to fear judgment. But the truth is that they were sinners deserving of death. The Israelites had to put the blood on the doorpost precisely because they were as guilty as the Egyptians and so needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. The Passover was a call to look to the Lord for what? For salvation. To trust in him and his provision for rescue. And a failure to do so would result in death. All humanity, everybody say all. This is all-encompassing. All humanity is under the wrath of God and justly deserves what? Punishment. Death. Eternal separation because of our sin. We need a what? What do we need? We need a substitute. Again, this theme of salvation through judgment, which we talked about quite a bit last week, if you were here. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground last week, but again, salvation through what? Judgment. That theme appears once again in our passage, Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. We've heard that. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Kaiser, one more time, and so just imagine Yogi Bear. Indeed, even all the gods of Egypt, verse 12, will be judged by this final plague of God. Obviously, th this is really cool. Obviously, he writes, those deities whose representatives were linked with beasts were dealt direct blows. The bulls, cows, goats, jackals, lions, baboons, rams. Now imagine, this really happened, by the way. This really happened. This is not myth. I hope you realize this really happened in time and space. So these animals just die. I mean, can you imagine the smell and the sight and the sounds? The bulls, the cows, the goats, the jackals, the lions, baboons, rams, etc. With the sudden death of these sacred representatives, there could be little doubt that it would be interpreted as a direct blow to the gods of Egypt themselves. 
they gone. <laughs> we see the need for substitution once again in Exodus 13. Let me just read a few verses here. Exodus 13, 1 and 2, and then verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate. Now, this is, this is interesting. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, what are we to make of these verses? God was establishing his ownership over the people of Israel. This would be seen in them dedicating their firstborn animals, and more significantly, their firstborn sons. To who? To the Lord. God is saying, it's mine, just as you are what? You're mine. Now, what did this mean for the animals? The firstborn of the animals belonging to the people of Israel was to be what? Sacrificed to the Lord. That means killed. And this process is described in Numbers 18, 17. But the firstborn of a cow or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, this is, this is important. There are two exceptions here. What are they? Donkeys and us. <laughs> That's really funny. Think about that. First, the donkey. The donkey, I'm not going to say anything. I don't have to. I don't have to. The donkey was a pack animal and was considered ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they could not be used as a sacrifice. However, the donkey, like everything else, still belonged to who? Still belonged to the Lord. He still had to be given over to the Lord, but how? Well, one option we just read about was you could break the donkey's neck. You just break the neck. Another option was to redeem the donkey. A lamb could be offered in its place as a what? As a substitute. And this was the cost of redemption. Now, the second exception was the firstborn son. What's interesting is that mankind is placed in the same category as donkeys. Unclean. Unclean. Now, God obviously did not condone child sacrifice. So what could be done? The answer is found at the end of verse 13. This is Exodus 13, 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall what? You shall redeem. You shall redeem. Pada. Now, Exodus doesn't tell us how this was done, but it may be assumed that the firstborn son, like the donkey, could be redeemed by a what? A, a substitute. Most likely a lamb of sacrifice. Here we have another incredible picture of salvation by substitution. Now, a different verb for redeem is used here. It's the verb pada. One scholar writes, the verb pada recalls how someone under the sentence of death may save his or her life by paying a ransom. The ransom price in the instance is the life of another, a substitute. Now, without this substitution, the firstborn son would perish. In the same way, without the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place, we will perish forever. Is true? Forever. One more thing to note here. The picture painted in Exodus 13 is God's will for all his people. God desires for all of his blood-bought people 
to be wholly committed to Him. But this is only possible by trusting in the one who was wholly committed to the Father, the one who made a way for sinners as our propitiation, the one who died for us, taking God's wrath in our place. And that's really what propitiation is. Propitiation denotes satisfaction by substitution, right? God's wrath against our sin had to be appeased. It had to be satisfied. And who satisfied God's wrath in our place? Christ as our what? As our substitution. Only then may we be fully set apart and wholly committed to the Lord and His purposes. It's by trusting in the one who was wholly committed to the Father in our place, who lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserved and rose again. And those who trust in Him are now wholly committed to the Father. We have been, now this is really interesting, we have been liberated from slavery to slavery. Man, come on, that was a slip of the tongue. What what did you mean to say, Chris? Let me say it again. We, if you're a believer in Christ, have been liberated from slavery (gasps) to slavery. What? But our new slavery is ironically free. In belonging to a new master, Jesus Christ, we are now free to serve God. Amen? We are now free to serve God. And in the Lord, true, lasting freedom is found. You will never be free until you're found in Christ. Amen? Paul gets this, and he gets at it in Romans 6, verse 13 and 22. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. As mentioned earlier, the image of substitution and more specifically salvation through substitution appears across the whole of redemptive history, culminating where? The death of Jesus Christ. We we see another glimpse of this pre-incarnation in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen to the language here. This is substitutionary language. This is in place of language. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, the biblical writers apply this Passover imagery to who? To Christ in his saving work. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 1, 29, if you were at man camp, I I preached on this. The next day he... J.B., John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. And then Romans 3.25, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Uh, a good friend of mine back in Washington, we were studying the Gospels together, and I explained to him what this word propitiation meant. And he said, oh, so Jesus is kind of like a wrath sponge. Yeah, that's good, brother. He's a wrath sponge. He absorbs God's wrath in our place. Amen? Satisfying God's justice. So I don't think it's uh, irreverent to refer to Jesus as our wrath sponge. He absorbed God's wrath for us, thankfully. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, what does Paul mean by this? He passed over former sins. God would not fully and finally punish sin until what? The cross of Christ. Everything before this, every Old Testament institution was merely a pointer to the once and for all sacrifice, the once and for all substitution, the once and for all satisfaction found in Jesus. Now, the Passover and later on the sacrificial system did not definitively deal with the sin problem. Instead, they function primarily as a what? As a pointer to something greater, something permanent. The lambs of sacrifice revealed the gravity of sin, but it was the Lamb of God who would take the full weight of our sin at the cross. Hebrews 10, 1 and 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <clears throat> when one looks at the Passover and later on the sacrificial system, one thing becomes obviously clear. This is not a fair trade. This is not a fair trade. The life of an animal for a human life, does that sound fair? No, of course not. These two are not equal. What's going on here? Tim Chester writes, the sacrifice of a lamb means there is unfinished business. There's unfinished business, friends. After all, who really thinks a lamb is a fair exchange for a human life? He goes on to write, the lamb is simply a pointer. It's an embodied promise of a true substitute. The Passover is the sign of a greater act of redemption. Everything in Scripture points to Christ. Everything in Scripture points to the gospel. Everything in Scripture points to the cross. Finally here, <clears throat> the tenth plague is the ultimate sign. It is the ultimate sign. It reveals God's authority over life and death. God has the power to take life, and he has the power to what? To give life. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus. We see it when he raises Jairus' daughter. We see it in John 11 when he raises Lazarus. And most significantly, we see it in the resurrection of Christ. Amen? So salvation through substitution. Number two, remember and celebrate. A major theme in Scripture is remembering. Why? Because we forget. <laughs> We're quick to forget, right? Right? Nehemiah 4.14, remember 
the Lord, who is great and awesome. It's a soapbox for me. My wife knows. My kids know. My parents know. I don't like it when people use the word awesome for anything other than the Lord. Listen, I'm just going to leave it at that. If you see me go, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. It's just a pet peeve. I don't get annoyed by much. But man, that was so awesome. Especially that dude is so awesome. Like, You're awesome. The rage monster and dude perfect. I kind of go, God is awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Awesome. Be in all the Lord and nothing else. Amen? All right, that was my soapbox. I'm stepping off. Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. God often commands his people to commemorate his acts of deliverance, provision and grace by, and if you've read through the Old Testament, by erecting a pillar or introducing, I love this, a feast or some other type of celebration. And this is especially seen in the Exodus with the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Following the Passover meal was a week-long festival. Amen. A week-long festival known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both of these celebrations were meant to celebrate and commemorate God's mighty act of rescue on behalf of his people. The Passover, his provision, and his salvation, the Exodus. The Passover commemorates God's liberation, right? He liberates his people from what? From death. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God's liberation from slavery. Both feasts acknowledge God's saving work on behalf of his people. So Exodus 12, 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord. And I love this language. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Exodus 12, 17 and 18, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. <coughs> In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Exodus twelve twenty-four. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. In Exodus twelve forty-three to forty-nine, the Lord provides specific instructions for keeping the Passover meal. Exodus twelve forty-seven. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And then in Exodus 13, 3 to 10, the Lord provides specific instructions for keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus 13, 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Now, I told you in your handout, I would give you an outline of where we're going to be, right? Because we're covering a lot of ground quickly. I borrowed from Tony Merida. He sees this theme of remembering as central place in this passage. And so I thought this was helpful. He writes, Exodus 12, 1 to 28. This is in your handout, by the way. Remembering the substitute, that section. Remembering the substitute. Exodus 12, 29 to 32. Remembering the severity and mercy of God. Exodus 12, 33 to 42. Remembering God's deliverance. And then finally, Exodus 13, 1 to 16. 
remembering the strong hand of the Lord. Let us not forget. And we're about to see why. Why it's important that we don't forget. But what were they remembering? What were they remembering and celebrating, and by what means? The Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were to be programmed into Israel's annual calendar as a reminder of God's glorious salvation and provision. It was remembering through joyful celebration. And this theme fits with the overall purpose of Exodus, the knowledge of the Lord. God acts so that we might know, and so that what we not know might bring him glory. When we know things, the more we know about God, the more we'll glorify God. Does that make sense? Like, as you grow in your knowledge, I've I've described it this way, right? I mean, we get saved, we we hear the gospel, we trust in Jesus, we're sinners, he's the Savior, we deserve wrath, he gives us grace. We know a little bit, right? And we glorify God, but as we grow in our understanding of the Lord and that, that window is kind of opened up or those curtains are drawn back and we see more of his character, it's more of this, glory, honor, praise. I hope that makes sense. God didn't want anyone to forget who he was and what he'd done in this for his glory. We remember for his glory. God wants us to know. And what we know, he wants us to remember. And what we remember, it's for his what? It's for his glory. Now, why is remembering so important? What happens when we forget? Judges. Judges 2, 10 to 12. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot. They what? They forgot. They forgot their Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Judges eight thirty four. And the people of Israel did not remember. They forgot they did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Where do we see this in the New Testament? The importance of remembering the Lord and his salvation. The most obvious example, who was here last Sunday night? What's the most obvious example of us remembering? The Lord's Supper. Luke twenty two nineteen, and he took bread... And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, Don't forget. Don't forget who I am and what I've done. Now, Paul himself provides specific instructions for the Lord's Supper, and this is 1 Corinthians 11, helping us to see that this was a regular practice for the early church. They gathered to remember. Why do we gather, church, to to remember. And this is cool. I wrote a paper on this years ago. But the Lord's Supper recorded in the Gospels was what kind of meal? It was a Passover meal. It was a Passover meal. Mark 14, 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Mark 14, 22 to 25, and as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for many. That is substitution language. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. 
What's missing in that description of the meal? We've got some bread. We've got some wine. What's not mentioned? The lamb. There's no mention of the lamb. Why? Jesus is at the heart of this meal, at the very center, because Jesus is the Passover lamb, the lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter makes the clear connection between the Passover lamb and the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now, we must remember that during the time of Jesus, two things were going on when the Passover meal was taken by the Jews. They looked back, okay, so when they, when they had this meal, this Passover meal, they looked back to the Exodus, God's great act of deliverance, but they also looked ahead with great expectation to what? The new Exodus to come, when God would come again to save his people. Read Isaiah 40 to 55 in this rescue language, right? It's, it's full of Exodus imagery pointing ahead to the greater rescue to come. And so when the Jews would take the Passover, they would look back, to the Exodus, and they would look ahead to the new Exodus. And, and we do the same thing when we take the Lord's Supper. We look back to the cross. Amen? We look back to Christ's sacrifice, but we also look ahead to his return in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this further applies to our weekly gathering as well. Why do we gather, church? We gather to remember, to commemorate, to celebrate the Savior, Jesus Christ. We gather to remember the gospel. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We typically start with verse 24, but it begins in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, the gospel. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, here we see the importance of gathering with God's people. We gather to remember. Everybody say, we gather to remember. And don't forget. Don't forget. We gather up to stir up, or the language there in the Greek is to provoke one another with God's truth. The writer of Hebrew warns, do not forsake this gathering. He knows how important this is because of what's at stake. What happens when we forget? Remember that Dennis Hopper, bad things, man, bad things. That was like a man. Maybe late 80s, early 90s. All right. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul is saying what? Remember. Why do we gather to? Remember. And number three, to pass on. Pass on. This theme is closely related to the last. Here we see the specific implications of remembering, commemorating, and celebrating God's mighty acts of rescue. It's so that future generations might remember and continue to pass on what God has done. Exodus 12, 26 and 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. 
when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Exodus 13, 8 and 9. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your head, on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. How do we pass on God's good news? How do we do it? Verbally. We speak it. Amen? We speak it to one another. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. But I want to highlight one specific application that appears throughout Scripture. And that is the application of parents to their children. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7, this is the Shema, which that's just the Hebrew word for listen, Shema Yisrael. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And I sing this to my boys every night, right? I'm not going to sing it for you. One day I might. Why is this so important that we pass on? And again, I, w- I want to talk about just the, the specific application of parents to their children. As we saw earlier in Judges, what happens when God's people forget to remember God's saving work? They fall back into what? They fall back into sin. Our children are the next generation. This same emphasis on passing on truth, God's truth, his rescue story, the gospel, to our children is found where? In the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, in the instruction of the Lord. Parents, how are you currently seeking to pass on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your children? How are you seeking to do that right now? Are you practicing regular family worship? Are you regularly opening up God's word with your children? Start today. We have some great resources. How can you grow here? I want to encourage just a simple threefold method. Read, pray, and sing. It's not hard. Start in Mark. Read five to seven verses, not chapters. Five to seven verses. Pray about what you've read. Even ask some questions. I do that with the boys. I'll read a section from a gospel, and then I'll ask them one or two questions. And then I'll pray, and I'll have them pray in light of what we've read, and then we'll sing a song. And if you need some hymns, I'll send them to you. Four or five that I recommend. So again, family worship, start today, read, pray, and sing. So that your kids may remember so they might know who Christ is and what he's done, and that for the glory of God. The last point is this, a new allegiance. God's people were saved to serve. No longer was their allegiance to Pharaoh. No longer were they slaves to Pharaoh. There was a transfer in citizenship. There was a transfer in allegiance due to God's mighty work of salvation. This work of salvation would result in a what? A new allegiance, a new way of life characterized by service, worship, and obedience. This is Exodus 12, 27. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Exodus 12, 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Exodus 13, 5. You shall keep this service in this month. What is our appropriate response to God's saving work on our behalf through Jesus Christ. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What are evidences? Now think about this, church. What are evidences in your own life that you've given your allegiance to King Jesus? If we looked at your life carefully, would we see evidences that you've given your allegiance to Christ? And what would they be? How is this seen in the way you spend your time, in the way you do marriage, in the way you parent? What's in with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2? Now I would remind you, there it is again, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is Paul doing here? Do you think these believers had forgotten the gospel? Of course not. He's saying to the church, don't forget. Don't forget. Why do we repeat something? For what? For emphasis. It's important, right? We repeat things that are important. There's nothing more important than the gospel. Paul's saying to the church, don't forget. Remember the gospel. Let this event, this good news, continue to shape you into the people God wants you to be. Trust in Jesus and commit to gathering with his people for the purpose of remembering. Remembering what? The gospel. And finally, look for ways to pass on this good news to others and this for the glory of God. What, what do we learn about God's character through the Passover? He's merciful and he's just. He's merciful and he's just. And what do we learn about God's character through the cross? He's merciful and he's just. He punishes sin and he pardons sinners. Imagine you're living in a place where there's a king. And this is a good king. He's a benevolent king. He takes care of his people. And he's traveling. He's on tour. Okay? He's visiting all the small cities and regions to speak an important word. He has good news to bring. And the city knows, hey, next month the king's coming to our town. Invitations have gone out. Billboards have the date. I mean, everywhere you look is a reminder the king's coming. And the date finally arrives, and the, the town has rented out the biggest arena. It, it seats the whole town, essentially. And the day comes, and the king shows up, and only two people show up. Would the king be honored by that, or dishonored? Why do we gather? Why do we gather, church? Why do we do this every Sunday? We gather for the honor of the king. And when you don't gather, what are you doing? You're dishonoring the king. We gather to remember, we gather to know, and we gather to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I mean, listen, this, this gathering is so significant. We gather for his glory. If that's all you got today, praise God. Why do we gather? And why do we glorify him? Because he's, he's worthy. He's worthy. Father, we thank you for your worth, your matchless worth. God, we know that you're worthy because you're a good God. You're all-powerful, yes. You're all-wise, yes. You're all-present, yes. But you are merciful. You are kind. You are loving. You are faithful. And we see this at the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect life. We thank you for your sacrificial death. 
And we thank you for your resurrection because of which we who trust in you by grace are pardoned, we're covered, we're forgiven, and we're brought into your family. And I pray for those in this room who say, yes, I'm part of God's family. I've trusted in the Son. That, Father, we would see and realize how important this gathering is. That we would gather to celebrate. That we would gather to pass on. That we would gather as evidence of our allegiance to Christ our Lord. And this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.